Let us pray. Father, you are so good. Good as creator, good as revealer. But as we see today in this text, good to your people, who, who which we, we count ourselves part of. Not through the, the blood of some goat, or not because of some blood over a doorpost, but because of the blood of your son. Jesus, we thank you for calling us to be your church, uh, for giving us this word, and, and your spirit to apply it to our lives, our need for cleansing. Jesus, we, we pray now, if there are any here dead in their sins, that think that they will wash and scrub on their own, that they see the futility, the failure of that. And we ask, Jesus, that today even you would bring dead people to life, ones that are dead in their sins, would say, my God and my Lord. Let this word be faithful. Let it apply to this congregation and edification and just bring us together in love of you and each other more because of it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, yeah, thanks, John. Uh, uh, thank you for that reading. Uh, uh, I am... I'm back. I feel like I'm always doing Old Testament with you guys. Zechariah, Psalm 84, Korah's Rebellion, and now Leviticus. There's a theme. Um, this church is so dear to me, uh, so I'll just get right to the Bible, because it's the best thing I can give you. Uh, if you want to be prepared for today's sermon, uh, you can have Leviticus 11 and 12 opened, uh, as well as have Mark 7 ready, or if you have it memorized, that's fine. I don't, I don't know what kind of scripture memory you do here. As well as 1 Peter 1. Uh, but today, so, so that was Leviticus 11 and 12, Mark 7, and 1 Peter 1, is what we'll end up at. I don't know how much will be up there. Uh, we come to the cleanliness code today. Strangely, some of the most boring part of Leviticus, like snoozer, you just heard it read, snoozer. But while it is some of the most boring, probably the second most taught on passage in Leviticus. Uh, you have all heard a sermon, I hope, on the Day of Atonement, the, the, the prefiguring of Christ and the sacrifice, but you have heard some teaching on Leviticus 11. Um, you, you've certainly heard teaching on it, and, it, and it usually goes in one of two ways. One, why don't these matter now? Why don't these matter now? You know, you're going to go out of here and have your bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. Uh, and how, and the other one, maybe they'll try to be a little more biblical and say, let's look at how all these made Israel distinct from the nations. Um, so let's sort of address that first point, because uh, we'll say it's not the point of the text, um, as Nathan, Nathan and I have been reminded this week. Uh, if you want to look more at that idea of why don't we do all these now, look at Mark 7, Acts 10, Acts 15. Y'all have heard of the book of Acts, right? Yeah? Acts 10, Acts 15. Um, but I'll ask this, just to sort of help us see that, that that's not the point to this original audience. Do, do Moses... People, the ones he's talking to, these Israelites in Leviticus, are, are they just in the wilderness saying, I'm glad we're getting these teachings so one day God can yank them away from us? No, no, that's, that's not what's going on. Uh, they would be meaningful to them, life-giving to them. Uh, what would they see? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. And second, the idea that the thing we should take from this is that, oh, this is how Israel is so distinct from the nations. That will be very important. I mean, not eating pig will set you apart. People notice. But the people Moses is talking to right now, what identity do they have? Remember, the Red Sea just happened. You don't need to teach them that much, hey, you're different from Egypt, because they remember the army drowned. Like, that was maybe a few weeks ago. And then, sort of as a part of that, people try to make these all about health, um, but we'll see that there's some things that would actually be what we would call quite unhealthy um, in these. So, Sort of those, those two introductory ideas out there, then what do we do with it? And uh, what is always good, this is sort of teaching how to read the Bible first, is to ask, why is this here? You know, why is Leviticus 11 right here where it is in the book of Leviticus? Um, so I'm going to give you a little introduction more to the whole book. My, my people have had to suffer through a whole sermon series on Leviticus. I'm going to give you the short version. So suffer with me, it builds character. Um, Leviticus actually begins in Exodus 40. Um, if, you, if you're looking in Exodus 40, uh, let, me, let me read you the closing words there in Exodus 40, 34. Exodus 40, 34. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all those of the house of Israel throughout all their journey. Uh, for better or worse, God in Leviticus is Israel's neighbor now. God had been sort of the God of like one patriarch at a time or one mountaintop at a time. And now it's like, where's God? I'm in a tent. God's in a tent right over there. But so, okay, God is our neighbor, Israel. Now what? Now what? So thinking of the structure of Leviticus, Leviticus 1 through 3 is all the happy sacrifices. God has a tent. How will we approach God's tent? So 1 through 3, we have the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the oh-so-important peace offering. Um, the amazing God of Abraham and the plagues and the one who drowned armies says, I, I want you, normal, everyday Israelite, to come to my house and have a meal. Be my neighbor. Be my neighbor. You know, honey, God has invited us over to his tent for dinner. Um, but there is a dark thing in all those passages. The very first Sacrifice mentions the word atonement and slaying. We must never forget this. The, the Bible always presents that the worshiper brings the murder. The worshiper worships through slaying. Um, so, but it's important to remember Leviticus 1-3 through 3 is, is all theoretical. No actual sacrifices occur. Um, we would find it very boring, like how long are they going to talk? When can we get to the worship part? But then in 4-6 through 6 of Leviticus, it talks about the bad day sacrifices. You're having a bad day with your neighbor. So it mentions the sin offerings and the guilt offering. This is beautiful. God knows that this, this new people with this new identity coming out of slavery will make mistakes. He knows they won't be perfect. So he, he front loads how to have a relationship with sinful people. But also the bad day sacrifices aren't just for issues between your, your tent and God's tent, like I back over God's mailbox, but it also has to do with the other tents. God is sanctifying the people among themselves. Leviticus 6.2 If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, he shall restore it in full and add to it a fifth and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Verse 6 and he shall bring the rest of the priest as a compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. Here's so important to see in Leviticus. The people are learning God's tent in their midst, because God's tent is there with his fire over it. It should change the relationships I have with the other tent. It is not just a me and God proposition. It is all the tent. But still, theoretical, nothing happens. Leviticus 7 and 8 is all about the people, especially the priests, getting ready, preparing for worship. There's garments, there's anointing, and most importantly, there's seven days of waiting. Holiness takes time. There is, there is a growth, there is an expectancy with regard to Israelite worship. And then finally, finally, in Leviticus 9 through 10, it is no longer theoretical Let's listen to the first Israelite worship service in Leviticus. Now that they have established tabernacle practice, they've had the instruction, the training, the consecration. Leviticus 9.22. Listen if this sounds like a good day at church. Leviticus 9.22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Amen? That's a, that's a good day at church. It looks like heaven on earth. Wow. God's tent among his people. Now let me read what happens next. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his priest. This is all part of that first day. Best day of worship and worst day of worship. They have priests offering strange fire. Aaron's sons are dying. And this is, this is what happens so often in life. Israel goes from the highest of spiritual high to the lowest of spiritual full, uh, lowest of spiritual low. There is a real danger of the whole thing falling apart. Like, yes, God has put his tent among their midst. Look, there's God's fire. God's presence is with us. He wants to know normal Israelite like me. I can have dinner with him. But if you go over to your neighbor's house for dinner, first time sort of meeting them, and you kick their cat, and you light their house on fire, is there a chance they may not invite you back? Leviticus is at a point of a question mark. Is What's going what's to happen next? Leviticus 9 and 10 demands a resolution. What should come next? If we were writing the story, we would say, well, here's how they reconcile. Here's how things get fixed. And you get those answers in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. Um, that, that's what we would write. How, how are they going to put things back together? But there's a little bit in Leviticus 10.10. In the middle of God renewing the Aaronic priesthood, we get Leviticus 10.10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So, first, we need to read Leviticus 11-15, through 15, the whole cleanliness code leading up to the Day of Atonement, as a grace. As a grace. How? doesn't sound graceful to us. But if we've been tracking the story, it's a grace to the people of Moses, the Aaron, the Aaronic priest, because it is a breather. It is a breather. A pause. A coda, if you will. If you were to read through Leviticus 10, you might say, that is heavy, that is dark, I need a break. Aaron and the priests definitely need the break. That, that's the tone of the end of Leviticus 10. He's like, I'm not ready to finish all the sacrifices. God knows that they need time and space to process things. So he doesn't move on to Aaron and the priests. Hey, you guys just died. Get ready to do the dangerous thing again. Instead, God shifts gears. Let's try something different. Let's focus on the teaching ministry of the priests teaching about discerning and about people. So Leviticus 11 and 12, the target audience is to get this into the hearts and minds of the common people. But even in that act, it is a grace for the priest, a grace for the people. So what graces, what good things would the common Israelites, these former slaves, see here in Leviticus? First, the common person's whole life matters. Not just what they do in God's tent. Every single moment of their life matters. Uh, thank you again for that reading. Leviticus 11, 1 through 2. What does it say? Or I'll start in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And in verse 8, You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcass. They are unclean to you. Israel, what you eat matters. What you touch matters. I feel like Christians are often too mean to Jewish or Levitical religion. Oh, it's, all they do is care about food laws. But remember from their perspective, they have less Bible than us. What is the first instruction given to Adam? Eat this, not that. In many ways, you could track the whole Bible as being about what people eat. Christian, we just have better spiritual food than they do. But it isn't just about eating and touching. Verse 32, this wasn't part of our reading, but if you, if you indulge me in Leviticus 11.32, and anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack. Any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into an earthen well vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall what? Break it. Break it. Any item in an Israelite's tent is caught up in this system of ritual purity. Every single thing in their tent. A pot is not just a pot. It is either clean or unclean. A shirt is not just a shirt. I mean, we say they're clean or unclean, but like in a spiritual sense. 
the common Israelite couldn't just leave religion at the door of the tabernacle. Clean and unclean followed them home. Why? Why? See, we need to understand, a young Jewish man from the tribe of Zebulun, not from the Levitical tribe, they could look at all these laws about clean and unclean, and they might think something very, you know, intuitive. I'm not of the tribe of Levi. Levi, I'm not a priest, and I never will be a priest. It was an ancestral thing. So why does cleanliness matter to me? I will never be invited inside God's tent. God gives us the answer in Leviticus 11. 11.44, we'll make much of this verse today. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy for what? For I am holy. I am holy. I'm your God, Israel. I'm commanding you to consecrate yourself, not because you aspire to the priesthood, but because every single Israelite is to consecrate themselves. And consecrate, this word comes from the Hebrew word for holy. So consecrate and be holy are very similar. Uh, And holiness for God in Leviticus is God setting apart for himself. It's a thanksgiving word for me. Have you ever seen all the pies laid out in Thanksgiving? You're like, this one's mine. I want a piece of this one. This is for me. So God is telling the Israelites. He's not telling the Israelites, oh, I just called dibs on that tent. Or, oh, Israelite, I just called dibs on the priest. Or, Israelites, I just called dibs on the Levites. He's saying every single one of you are mine. You belong to me. If a bug falls into your cereal bowl, I know you are mine. It's not oppressive. It is gracious. I hope you see the grace in all this. These instructions in Leviticus are never man's invention to please God. After all, it says God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. Uh, We're not saying I'm going to keep my tent clean so that God notices me. No, the grace of it is God saying, I see you former slaves. Remember, they're former slaves. They've been the lowest of low. And and God's saying, I know you. I notice you. Your former master, the Egyptians, treated you like dirt. I want you to know, I know you intimately, even when a bug falls in your cereal bowl. What is the second point? Second point is unclean and detestable is permanent. And if I was putting notes in your lap, I would put an asterisk there. But for almost everything we'll see today, unclean and detestable is permanent. Permanent. Uh, I want to point something out. Uh, just it's so hard for us to read Leviticus um, because in our culture, do we like to talk about sinful, yucky, unholy things? Not in secular culture at all, but even in church culture. Uh, look at the words in Leviticus 11 and 12 uh, for all the sort of holiness words or, or dealing with sanctity or purity. It mentions common, clean, sin, guilt, holy, consecrate, defile, purity, purify, detestable. So this isn't the point that the Israelites would see, but almost to point out, we almost can't see with their eyes because these aren't words that we use. If, if we uh, uh, talk about sin, we have a very thin understanding of unholiness. We say, hey, what's the difference between sin and guilt and trespass? Our, our very churchy answer would say, it doesn't matter, Jesus solves them quickly, which is true to the glory of Christ. But they are words that should mean something to Israel. They should mean something to us. We don't know how to use our words for unholiness because, let's be honest, do we like to look at the yucky stuff? Who, who tracked all the mud into the house? Ah, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, Mama. No, it, it came from somewhere. So that aside over, what are these words for unholiness? Let's start with the word detestable as we begin to understand the Israelite mind about the things we're reading. Leviticus 11, 11 through 12 says, You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the water that does not have fins and scales is detestable for you. Sorry, Israelite, no catfish. But what does the word detestable mean? It means filth or rubbish. Something that you should completely undesire, and also something you really have to go out of your way. How do we, how do we mean this? Leviticus 11 here is about catfish, or, or blended sort of strange fish like that, sharks and, and whatnot. Leviticus 11 is helping us understand the word detestable is for things that these desert-dwelling Israelites would have to go out of their way to encounter or or consume. Um, So if we think of pig from earlier in Leviticus 11, 
If you're wandering in the wilderness, is there a chance you might come across a pig or a boar carcass? You know, if we were wandering in West Texas, might you see a dead pig? Absolutely. Absolutely. It just sort of happens. It would make you impure for worship. But if some guy from the tribe of Asher says to the priest, sorry priest, I can't come to worship today. I'm unclean. Oh, oh brother, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened today? I accidentally, I know we're in the desert, but I accidentally ate a catfish. What will the priest say? You did not accidentally do anything. We're in the desert. Where did you get a catfish from? But you may protest in verse 41 and 42. It talks about the bugs, but notice the precision of the language. Uh, Leviticus is a very precise book. I'm having my people like highlight positive commands, negative consequence, but listen to this, 41 and 42. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat it, for they are detestable. So 41 and 42 would cover scorpions and spiders and such. If you're in the desert wandering for 40 years, what is the likelihood of you running into a scorpion? Pretty high. But notice it doesn't just say touch. It doesn't just say squash their carcass, what does it say? Eat them. This sort of proves the point. It, I, I don't need the Bible to tell you this. All you people, would eating a scorpion be detestable to most of you? You can be the most pagan of pagan, and that's the default answer. So the idea is, hey priest, I can't worship today. Oh, what is it this time? Did you eat more catfish? Did you run into a pig? It was an accident, but I ate a scorpion. And the priest will say, you did not accident anything that was on purpose. Um, so the point being, there are things that the common Israelite was never to desire and could hardly claim innocence or ignorance in transgressing that law. If you ate a scorpion, you cannot say the devil made me do it. You just went and did it. I don't know why. But our second and more common word is unclean. Unclean a very common word in the Hebrew Bible. Let's read Leviticus 11, 27, and 28. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Again, to point out that in English, just our culture and the way we think about sinfulness and uncleanliness, we're not very creative. We take the word clean, and if we say, oh, something sort of has a measure of unholiness, what do we do? We just stick the prefix un in front of it. So, that, so we say something's clean or unclean, they just swap back and forth. Easy peasy. In Hebrew, they're not the same word. They're not even quite related, other than that they feature together, clean and unclean. Um, and so what this means is that it's usually something is always unclean. Okay? It, it talked about animals with paws. I'm sorry. But sad news, your kitty cat, your dog, are unclean, unclean. Thank, thank God for the gospel of Christ. No, no matter how much you scrub your dog or anoint them, they will always be unclean. And, and we're frustrated about the dogs. Israel would be supremely frustrated by the camels. What would be so excellent to have part of their daily life if they're wandering through the desert? Camels. What does it explicitly say is an, is an, is an unclean animal? Camel. Man, God, it would be easier to fulfill your covenant of the land, to fulfill your promises to Abraham, if we just fudge. They're unclean. No matter what you do, they are unclean. But then it's not even just animals. Verse 33, And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. My grandma gave me that pot. It's a family heirloom. A mouse falls into it. Too bad unclean. There's only one solution. Destruction. Destruction. There's only one thing that is completely incorruptible in the Israelite camp. We'll make more of it in our conclusion. Um, but it is not any of the animals. It is not any of the vessels. Their pots are not safe. Their tents are not safe. Their clothes are not safe. Even the very lambs that they might bring to sacrifice. If they die of disease. So I want to worship God. I'm bringing this lamb. If that lamb dies of disease it can now make you unable to worship God. What you were raising to worship God can make you unable to worship 
And you can scrub the camel. You can anoint the camel. You can say, God, this camel would be so beneficial, but it will always be unclean. The point being, the common Israelite would hear Leviticus 11 and 12 and hear how permanent and how contagious uncleanliness is and say, my whole life, my whole world is conspiring against my worship of the God in that tent over there. I want to get to that tent I can't because of all the other stuff. I'm a shepherd. I see dead sheep every day. I'll never be clean enough to worship. I'm a seamstress. Mice always chew their way into my garments and die. I'll never be clean enough to worship. I'm a traitor. There are always unclean people coming around with their camels. I'll never be clean enough to worship. But perhaps, maybe you're someone in the camp who works with metal. There are probably very few people doing that. They are intense, sort of dangerous. But they say, you know, I make metal, I make coins, I'll be fastidious. No mice want to eat my coins. I'll buy sheep, like right outside the tabernacle. I won't raise them, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, I can do this. I can keep my tent clean. I will, be all, I will always be ready to worship. That brings us to our third point that the common Israelites would notice. The problem is unavoidable. Uncleanliness will find your tent. Why? That's why we read from Leviticus 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a mere child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Verse 5, But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Here's the truth. No matter how fastidious you are, no matter how much you scrub and wash and observe, the very act of fulfilling Abraham's promise to be a great nation, to, to bear another generation, introduces what to your tent? Uncleanliness. Uncleanliness. Producing children introduces uncleanliness into your tent. You can't run away from this stuff. But I want to point something else out that Moses' people would see here that is sort of a retelling of the Genesis 1 story. You know the Genesis 1 story. God speaks creation to existence, and you have sort of the spheres of creation uh, created, and then you have them filled up. And what does it say? It says, like, the creepy, crawly things are good. The, the swimmers are good. The ones walking on their paws are good. And then there's, there's one final uh, category of creature made. God creates humanity, and all creation is very good. The people in front of Moses would hear Genesis being told again. Except for now, creation is muddled. Creation is tainted. And they may wonder, what about those humans? What kind of animal are we? Are we clean? Are we unclean? Are we like the pigs? Or are we like the goats? And so what we would see in Leviticus 12, what are we? Human creatures are sort of both. Sort of clean, sort of unclean. That's why we had an asterisk on that last one. You might have been thinking, but yeah, people are unclean until evening, or, or they can wash and be unclean until evening. But you have to see in Moses' religion, humans are sort of the only creatures that routinely, as part of their life, go from clean to unclean. Y'all, this, these cleanliness laws are Romans 7 before Romans 7 is written. Paul says in Romans 7.21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That is the human race, even the most saintly saint. The Bible always presents us as strange creatures. Holy and whole, unholy, clean and unclean. We're made in the image of God, yet what do we do with the Son of God? Kill Him. Strange. Very strange. And so Israel is learning, pig, unclean, angel, holy, demon, damned, human. All of the above? Very strange. And now, Leviticus 12 is saying that we all sort of start with uncleanness, but is is it saying womanhood is dirty or birth is unholy? I feel like this is important for us to mention here. No, that is not the case. It's all about the flow of blood. We'll see this principle uh, as you go deeper into Leviticus, um, but also we'll connect this to the New Testament today. Leviticus always claims that from the inside of a person, if you get the insides coming outside, it produces uncleanness. So that, that's what it is. Uh, there's babies going from in to out. There's blood from going from in to out. Now, you may have questions about why the 40 days of cleansing and the 80 days of cleansing, if you add it all up, or about circumcision. I'm not going to answer those right now. 
They would not alarm Israel that much. You can talk to me later if you really want to. Um, I would encourage you to see the beauty of reading the circumcision narrative in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. It is beautiful. But there's something new that Israel would see that would be very important. Leviticus 12, 6 through 7. We made much in our singing today of the word atonement, and I'm so glad we did, because this is just amazing. The gospel's wonderful. Leviticus 12, 6 through 7. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. I'm going to say this twice. What we're learning in Leviticus 12, every child of the holy nation, every promised offspring of Abraham is born into sacrifice. Did you just see that? Let me say that again. Every child of the holy nation, every promised offspring of Abraham is born into sacrifice. Honey, I'm pregnant. We're due in eight months. That's wonderful. Something needs to die. The gospel is in Leviticus 12. My daddy was Jewish from the tribe of Zebulun, but my baby to be born and be part of the people of promise, something needs to die. And this exact sacrifice was done for Jesus in Luke 2.24, and Mary was so poor that she could only offer the birth. If there will ever be a fulfillment of Abraham's promise, a great nation, a holy people, you can't just have babies. Something needs to die. This is being infused in their culture from Leviticus 12 onward. Honey, I'm pregnant. Something needs to die. Jesus, uh, I know that you've heard this here before, is not plan B for God. He is the plan of God before time. Something needs to die. So in summary, what would the Israelites hear in all this? All these graces, now that we know they're for these commoners that came out of slavery. One, my whole life matters to God. God knows what falls into my cereal bowl. Second, uncleanness and detestableness is around me. And it usually is permanent. And sadly, even if I try my very best, the problem is unavoidable. But thank God, throughout all of Leviticus 11 and 12, there's many parts where it talks about cleansing and purifying. And usually it's, it's only a day. Sometimes it's a little bit longer. But how do we fit into Leviticus 11 through 12? How do we fit into Leviticus 11 to 12? Do you stop eating bacon? Do you go on some Christian fad diet? No. Here's the point for us today that Israel would understand as well. All, all need cleansing and re-cleansing. All need cleansing and re-cleansing. For the Israelites, they heard Leviticus 11 through 12 as a grace. I can be cleansed. I can be made holy. God has made a way. But there is one crucial thing to Israelite purity that we need to remind ourselves. Because of this truth, you can't say you've never been dirty. Or you can't say that something happened a long time ago and now you're, you know, I washed my hands before I went to the tabernacle five years ago. I'm good now. I'm good now. No, it is a daily battle. Every Israelite begins life with uncleanness, begins with deathliness, and you'll learn later in Leviticus, once they die, their body will introduce uncleanness to everyone around them. That's sort of your parting gift. You make everyone that loves you unclean. These Israelites could look at the world and know my day-to-day life, all that is around me, is moving against my worship of God. The very lamb they're raising to worship uh, can make them unable to worship God if it dies in the wrong way. So again, I think we modern Christians have such a thin language to discuss unholiness and uncleanliness. We don't want to look at it. Uh, we, we, we don't want to describe how our world has become twisted and bent or how I am twisted and bent. All sin is the same. All sin is just an obstacle. And Jesus helps me conquer that obstacle as efficiently as possible. There's gospel truth there, but there's also gospel shallowness. We don't talk about the unholy things in our life and in our world. And the Bible, especially Leviticus, would correct our thin understanding of unholiness, defilement, 
and uncleanliness. Again, all need cleansing and re-cleansing. Jesus did not come because people were so clean. He came because we are much dirtier than Leviticus and even express. It's worse than Leviticus lets on. Mark seven eighteen through 23. I asked earlier that you'd be ready to read that. Mark seven eighteen through 23. Jesus has been in a uh, discussion uh, with the Pharisees and religious leaders. And uh, he's talking to them about cleansing and tradition. And he drops this beautiful teaching. Part of the reason that, that we as Christians feel liberated from following the ceremonial law. You can eat bacon, but it's not because the problem is light. It is because the problem is deeper than you can imagine. Mark seven eighteen, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So go eat your BLTs this afternoon. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from, where church? Within. And they defile a person. The Pharisees have been fussing that Jesus' disciples have not been washing their hands according to their tradition. Jesus says their tradition is sort of garbage and it harms God's word. But he doesn't overturn Leviticus. Instead, he goes even deeper. Uncleanness is on the what? Inside. And there's something absolutely critical to see here that, that many Christians don't, don't fathom. Your deceit, your sexual immorality, your envious acts are not what make you unclean. They show, they are symptoms that the pollution is on the inside. And since we just read Leviticus, is that actually new in the Bible? No. God knows who people are. We're the ones who lie about ourselves. Leviticus always claimed that the source of pollution is on the inside. The cancer of uncleanliness is in our bones. The detestableness of sin has a ground, grown around your heart and your liver and your internal organs. It is a foolish thing to read the Bible and say, I have stopped that sinful act. I was looking at that. I was touching at that. I've stopped now I'm good. No, the question is, have you stopped where it was flowing out of? Are you free from that? Jesus did not make our human filth and uncleanliness easier to bear. He made it inescapable. All need cleansing and re-cleansing. The pollution is on the inside. Another thing that is good to do with an Old Testament passage is to see where it is most powerfully cited in the New Testament. This is 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. Uh, Peter writes to the church, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, listen for Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's important we understand, Christians, we haven't left the call to cleanliness. We are still a congregation before the tents. But our tent is heavenly. We are still a people gathered around a lamb, but our lamb is divine. I hope that you heard Peter's quoting of Leviticus, but if you missed it, let me read for you Leviticus 11.44. Look at how it compares to 1 Peter. Notice what is different, what is missing. Uh, Leviticus 11.44, it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. That's the part Peter cites. But then Leviticus goes on, You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. The part of Leviticus that Peter has cited essentially says this, I am the Lord, consecrate yourself, be holy, watch out for bugs. That's what Leviticus is saying there. Don't eat scorpions. 
It seems like something you don't have to say. See, I, I think we often feel sorry for Israelite religion. Oh, they had it so much harder for us, always thinking about holiness and, and cleanliness and, and so many rules for worship. I think they would look at us and say, actually, we have it very easy. Don't eat scorpion. Checkbox. That's, that's easy for them to tend to. Remember, their worship is at a tent. Now, we can talk later in Israel's history as they start to add on rabbinical Judaism thing, but for these guys who just got rescued from the Red Sea, if you ask them, where is God? What is God like? They'd say, I don't know. I just found out about this, but they would point. God's presence right there. Look at God's tent. If God wants me in that tent, I'll do whatever it takes to be clean for that. But Jesus and Peter, in discussing our defilement and holiness, don't point to bugs. Where do they point? Inward. Inward. What is inward? Listen to the inside myself words that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1 here. So this is just surveying very quickly. He says in verse 13, prepare your minds. Verse 13, be sober-minded. Verse 13, set your hope. 14, do not be conformed to the passions. 14, former ignorance. Conduct yourselves with fear. Verse 17, knowing that you were ransomed. Verse 18, the holiness that Peter is calling to is first an inward holiness. Christianity is not a mindless religion. It is mindful. We'll talk about the Spirit in a moment, but you need to see the parallel. That The daily bread and butter for the Israelite was they tended to their cleansing was to look inside their what? Not their heart. Their tent. Is there a pig over there? Is there a scorpion over there? Is there a mouse over there? And if they saw some uncleanliness, what did they do? They dealt with it. They got clean. They, they did something. And so they would ask throughout their life, will this pot prevent me from worship of Yahweh? Is this animal like something I left behind in Egypt? But Christian, that is not our bread and butter. Our bread and butter is not, I must stop certain behaviors. Now that may be a consequence of your Christian faith. No, behaviors are external. Your bread and butter, Christian, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, is to look inside yourself. What thoughts, motivation, grudges, shame, falsehood will prevent me from working? Hold up the things that occupy your thoughts and ask, is this like my sinful life I left behind? The Egypt of my sin. Is this like the world that is perishing? And the point that Israel would see and that we need to understand is you need to see your dirty stuff for it to be washed. If you don't notice the dead pig in your tent, you can't deal with it. But if we, Christian, have no words for our sin and uncleanliness or no time to examine our minds for impurity, then we won't be clean. I love that you did a confession of sin and pardon in your service. Many churches today worship without saying the word sin a one time. And that means we miss out. I don't mean losing your salvation. We'll talk more about salvation in a moment. The efficacy of our cleanliness is not based on you. But the point being, if you don't see your daily dirt, if you don't address or confess your daily sin, if you don't examine your mind for cleansing, then you miss out on daily grace, because there is grace here. If you ask an Israelite, how often does God provide for cleansing? Now, we could talk about the Day of Atonement and the once-a-year thing, but for Leviticus 11 and 12, how often, routinely, does cleansing come up? Wash and unclean until evening. There is fresh cleansing every day. A fresh start every day. But Christian, you never think about or discuss the dark parts of your mind. If you say, oh, I'm so clean, no deathliness here, hashtag blessed, then you are missing out because every day brings more grace, more cleansing for the dirty, but not for the ones who say, I'm never dirty. Admitting you need cleansing is right where you need to be, Christian. Reflecting on your inward unholiness and uncleanness is right where you need to be. And be washed, be clean, be made holy. So Christian, today, by way of application, looking in your own heart, your own mind, where are you dirty? Where do you need cleansing? And I don't ask this question to shame you. I ask that you would boast in the grace of God. 
God provides daily grace, daily cleansing for you. It is not a one and done deal. But unbeliever, I'm going to say something profound that may be hard to fathom, but your mama probably told you. Unbeliever, you can't wash without water. Your mom ever tell you that? Oh, I rubbed some soap on it. You can't wash without water. There was a part of Leviticus that I skipped on purpose. There is one incorruptible, undirtyable thing in the Israelite camp. It is not the pots. It is not the goats. It is not the priests. It is not the people. There is one thing that can never be made detestable. Let me read Leviticus 11 through 36. Leviticus 11, or Leviticus 11, 36. Nevertheless, a spring or cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. Now this is a very practical grace. If they need water to wash and their freshwater spring near them has something unclean fall in it, that would be a disaster. They would all die of thirst. But here's the, here's the thing I want you to see here. If an Israelite is holding a cup of water and a, a dead mouse drops into the cup, what happens? The cup is unclean. It's, it's irredeemably dirty, only fit for destruction, smash it. But if a mouse falls into a spring or well and dry, or dies, then the well stays clean. Stays clean. Death can't make the spring unclean. Which, as I mentioned before, this is one of the biggest knocks on the ceremonial laws not being about health. If a dead bull falls into Bull Creek and is just sitting there rotting, are any of you going to go swimming in that? No, you'd say that's, that's not sanitary. So why this ceremonial language, this ceremonial cleansing for even the spring or the well? I think there's being something taught here about the Spirit. Listen to Jesus in John 7, 37. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He is glorification, and John is his cross. In Leviticus, we learn so much about Jesus, as we should. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But I think in Leviticus 11 here, we're learning about someone else as well. The Spirit. The Spirit. If an Israelite had a jug of water, and they needed to ceremonially wash, but then a mouse falls in the jug, they would say, I still need to be cleansed. Too bad, so sad. Your water cannot accomplish what you wanted. You have to break the pot. It is useless worthless. But if you have a spring and you wash your filth today, and then the next day you wash your filth, and the next day that spring is clean. You can't make it dirty. An unbeliever, I think if you were honest, you have felt dirty in your life. You feel impure. And any, any preacher that tells you that you're not is lying. You are too filthy to worship a holy God, unbeliever, if you are using your own water. You say, I'll bring the scrubbing, I'll bring the bubbles, I'll bring the water, you will fail. You can keep up the sham only so long. But what does Jesus promise at this feast in John 7? Which, by the way, do you know the name of this feast? The Feast of Tabernacles? Tabernacles? He doesn't say, I will install a water softener within you. Let me drop off some bottled water for you to use. He says, you, dirty people, I will put a spring of water in you. I will have living water flow out of you. Unbeliever, yes, corruption, filth, sin, wicked thoughts spew out from inside you. But Jesus promises he can put a spring for cleansing on the inside. A life-sustaining spring within you. And you may protest, but I have so many old sins and skeletons in my closet. I'm so dirty on the inside. What did Leviticus just teach us about springs? If you throw a corpse in, is it dirty? No. If you make it dirty, is it dirty? No matter what you wash off in the spring, it is clean, useful for cleansing. 
Unbeliever, you will never be clean enough to worship a holy God without this spring, without this spirit. And good news, it is Jesus' spirit to give. And having the spirit not mean that you never need cleansing again. I think every Christian in this room would tell you they need to be washed daily. They are in that struggle daily. But the spirit means that you will never run out of pure, clean water. But unbeliever, without Christ, without His Spirit, without the spring of living water, you will never be clean, no matter what you try, whatever rules or regulations you attempt. The Pharisees were fussing about how to wash their hands. You cannot wash your heart. So I beg you, unbeliever, be cleansed today. Believe in this Jesus. Receive His Spirit. And you will be washed and washed. And the spring of living water will never run dry and it will never be unclean. Be cleansed today. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this this truth that, that You sent Your Son to die for impure people. He did not come to rescue the holy, but to wash the dirty. And I thank You, Jesus, that that you have called us from death to life, those that are in you. But in this this closing song of response, I I pray, Spirit, that you would convict those who have been saying, I will wash, I will cleanse, I will do it myself. Let them see the futility of their action. But whatever pot of water they have will run out, it will break, it will become impure. Let them see that they need God to make them holy. God to consecrate them. And the only means provided is the blood of your Son. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you would come. We pray this in your name.